Would you stand with me, please? We're going to read the passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 18. Luke 18, beginning at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Thank God for his word. Please be seated. This passage is found in three of the four Gospels. There are some passages only in one Gospel. In fact, most of the Gospel of John is only in John. There are some passages in two Gospels, a few in three, I mean a number in three, and a very few in four. This one is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And elsewhere, we learn that this young man is not just a ruler, but he is rich and he is young. So 28, 30, 32 years old, fabulously wealthy, this rich young ruler. Now, knowing that he is wealthy in first century Jewish society tells us something about him. There was an extensive belief, but first century Jews, that the wealthy were specially favored by God because they deserved it. They were good. They were holy. They, they were deserving of God's blessing upon their lives. And so there was this extensive mindset that, that he must be really pleasing to God. And so most of the wealthy had a problem with self-righteousness, you know, condescension towards others because they were so good. Now, if you were here last week, you know that that was the whole point of the passage, self-righteousness. Jesus told a story. He said there was this uh, a Pharisee and there was a tax collector. And the Pharisee was so proud that he was, you know, tithing and fasting and, and better than other people, especially that tax collector. And the tax collector had such humility, such brokenness. And he said, oh, oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the man who is right with God, not the self-righteous one. The greatest sin is to think that you are without sin, to think that you are, you know, better than other people and to look down your noses at them. Now, that was last week, and then there's a little passage right between last week and this week that we're not going to get to, but it's the same point. Jesus has some little children coming. The, the, the folks try to shoo them away, and he says, no, let them come. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child, uh, a humbly trusting little child. 
the opposite of self-righteousness. So self-righteousness in the parable, self-righteousness, you know, the opposite in in the children. And then this week, our passage begins with this ruler who is a rich, young, self-righteous ruler. You're going to see the self-righteousness coming up. Approaches Jesus, and he asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, the Jewish mindset of the day, I've got to do some things. I've got to be good enough. I've got to have the good things I do outweigh the bad things so I can earn heaven. You know, their standard, their mentality was earning it, being good enough. And uh, last week, as we saw with the tax collector who recognized he wasn't good enough, who cries out, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That all the world has this extensive performance mindset. We've got to earn our way to heaven. We've got to perform for God to love us. We've got to, got to do good things so that God will keep his hand of favor and blessing upon us. There is an extensive earn this mindset. Every religion in the world, except the gospel, boils down to be good enough to earn heaven, to be good enough to earn salvation. And unfortunately, this is what gets me, I bet 85% of Christianity is right there with them. You've got to perform you got to be good enough. you got to earn God's love. you got to earn your way into heaven. And the Bible says, no, there is only one sinner's prayer. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You don't have to say those exact words, but that's your heart. Lord, I am bankrupt spiritually. I could never earn my way to heaven with the holy God is perfect. Lord, have mercy on me. The only way to get into heaven is by grace, a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So it's so clear, church. It's so clear. We get into heaven, not because we perform and earn salvation, because we receive the gift of grace. Now, you see how that fits into humility, don't you? There is nothing more humbling than to say, I could never earn salvation. I am a hopeless sinner. If God doesn't have mercy on me, I'm sunk. Oh, God, have mercy on me. There is no human pride that can go with grace of God. No patting yourself on the back. Earn this was the mentality. And that's what this, this young guy had. You know, what am I to do to inherit eternal life? I think about, when I think about this, um, earn this mindset, there is a classic movie on World War II. Many of you saw it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan, a great Normandy beach storming, and, and then the aftermath. And, and Tom Hanks plays this older officer who sort of volunteered, if I recall, to fight in the war. And he is dying at the end and sort of in sacrifice for the younger soldiers like Matt Damon. And he's in his dying breath in this scene that's depicted up on the screens. And do you remember his final words to Matt Damon, some of you who've seen this movie? I'll never forget them. He, he looks him square in the face, in the eyes, and he says to this man, young man who's going to live the rest of his life, because, probably because of his sacrifice he gave, and he says to him, earn this. Earn this. That is, live a life worthy of my sacrifice, not giving my life for you. Church, the gospel... When Jesus Christ comes and sacrifices his life for you and me, he does not say, earn this. He says, receive this.
He says this is a gift, the gift of God. Receive the gift of God. Friends, this is the gospel. This is grace. You receive the free gift of life in Jesus. All the world is on the performance mindset. So is this self-righteous young man. He comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus is going to challenge him at several points. First of all, he unusually, kind of puzzling, says, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, that kind of, okay, what are you saying there, Jesus? We know clearly that Jesus is without sin, and, and he knows that. It, elsewhere, for example, he'd say, he who convicts me, you know, who, who is it who convicts me of sin? He knows he's without sin. He knows he's God. But here is this young man who's sort of throwing out empty words, who has the earn this mindset, whose standard of goodness is not God in heaven, but other people less than him. And he's saying, why are you calling me good? Nobody's good except God. Psalm 14, 3, there is no one who is good, not even one. And of course, that's repeated emphatically in Romans 3. No human being is good. Jesus is, is, is almost sort of like saying to him, um, do you have any idea who you're talking with? He's getting him to reflect on who Jesus is. Not a good man, but more than that, he is none other than God in the flesh. So why do you call me good? Then he goes on and talks about some of the commandments that he as a Jew would be trying to keep all of his life. He names five of the Ten Commandments. The five dealing with loving people, not the five dealing with loving God. And he begins naming them. Well, you know them. Um, you don't murder. You don't commit adultery. You don't bear false witness. You honor your father and mother. You know, those are the commandments. And, and in this incredible statement of arrogance, really, self-righteousness, the young man responds, all these I have kept... All these I have kept from my youth. You know, that is one of the most self-righteous comments I've ever seen in the Bible. All these I have kept from my youth. Last week when we looked at the Pharisee who also had self-righteousness, the passage closed when Jesus said, He who exalts himself will be humbled. Jesus is about to humble this guy. <laughs> He's a... Uh, you talk about the surprising, difficult things Jesus says. At times, you know, it's like a cup of cold water in our faces. And uh, here's a cup of cold water. And he says, okay, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, reward in heaven, and come on, follow me. Invitation to him, despite his self-righteousness. Just sell all you got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Can you imagine the impact of those words? The guy was wealthy. He was really wealthy. In fact, Luke's gospel tells he was extremely rich and he became immediately very sad because he immediately knew he wasn't going to do that. And Mark tells us at that point, he leaves. He walks away. Heavy-hearted, thick wallet, he leaves. Jesus looks right into his heart, saw that, yeah, he may have kept a few of these other commandments, probably not as good as he thought, but the very first commandment he had broken. You shall have no other gods before me. This was his God, his money, his wealth. When Jesus told him to give it up, couldn't do it. He did not even obey the first commandment. And Jesus knew what he needed to do. So Jesus uh, calls him to give the very thing up that he was hanging on to the tightest. He walks away sadly. And Jesus follows it up with these other cold water responses for you and me. When he says how hard it is. 
can find this passage. When he says how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, those are, those are big comments. Those are big statements. They ought to be big for you and me. Again, we think rich, our tendency is to, yeah, you know, those rich people over there, you know, they need to pay attention to this. We think about people who got a lot more money than us. And everybody Bill, except Bill Gates could think of somebody. But um, compared to the, all the people in the world, we're the rich. I'd say if you make over 50000 a, a year, I bet you're top 1%. I don't know, but I, I bet you are. And I bet if, uh, in terms of all the people that have ever lived, I bet you're top 0.1% or 0.5%. Just about everybody in this room Jesus is speaking to when he says, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And I hope you feel the, the power of that. I hope you uh, feel the challenge of that. I mean, that's not something to just sort of slough off. Here we are in the most affluent society just about in history. Uh, we're the rich. Why does Jesus say how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom? I feel the power of this. The challenge of this? Jesus, what are you saying to me? It, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Some folks kind of weasel out of that one saying, well, there was this small needle gate in the wall in Jerusalem, and if a camel really kind of pressed in and squeezed, it could squeeze its way through. It's hard, but it could be done. The problem is that's not true. There is no needle gate. There never was a needle gate. Jesus is talking about a sewing needle the eye of a sewing needle and a big, ugly camel. It's easier for a big, ugly camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Whoa. And church, this is where he's coming, the main point of the passage. What does that say and what does it not say? Is he saying that all of us need to sell our possessions? Well, that, that, um, you couldn't substantiate that, the biblical passage. He had followers who were some women who were supporting the ministry. Joseph of Marimathea, for example, was a rich man who took care of him after his death and, and other passages. In the early church, there were wealthy people who had enough extra, had sold houses and lands and brought it to the leaders of the church for them to distribute. And you couldn't substantiate that. God might lead you to do that. He apparently did for St. Francis, you know, one of the great Christian heroes in history who came from a very wealthy family. And St. Francis, when he became a believer, felt that uh, he should give it all away and live a life in poverty, probably influenced by this passage. Or C.T. Studd, who was a famous missionary in China, India, and Africa with Hudson Taylor's ministry in China. He grew up in the kind of home that we see on Downton Abbey. His dad was a lord. You know, that kind of background. And he was a great athlete in England, one of the most famous athletes. So Cambridge wealthy, great athlete, you know, a J.J. Watt kind of a, you know, name. And, and, and God calls him to go to China. He marries this young woman. They're living in China, and he gets this enormous inheritance and just felt that they are to give it all away. Probably influenced, I know it's influenced by this passage. Maybe God calls some folks to do that. But uh, that's not the, 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 the universal challenge. But what is he saying to us? He says, it's hard. It's hard. They have a lot of money. Why is it hard? 
It, it, is, it is hard to have a lot of money and to recognize our dependence, our deep dependence upon God. Have some of you who've got plenty of money now ever lived poor where you, you weren't sure where you're going to pay the bills? You were more dependent, I guarantee you, on God than you are now. Maybe that's why, time after time in the Bible, it's so often the poor that God calls out special attention because the poor are more likely to be dependent and humble before God. If you've got a lot of money, it is easy to look down on those who have less money. If you've got a lot of money, it is so easy to trust in your money and for security rather than in God. If you've got a lot of money, it is easy to make that part of your identity. To see yourself, I'm a successful, educated, wealthy suburbanite out here in Houston. Rather than I am a humble slave of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. And that's all I am. There are some real challenges about having a lot of money that you and I have got to face up to. It's a monster. It's a power. That's why Jesus repeatedly challenges us. Don't love money. It's a, it's a tool, not an idol. For this rich young man, it was clearly his God. Couldn't give it up. Even if Jesus asked him to, he walked away immediately. Is there anything you own that you can't give up? Maybe it's not money. Maybe your idol is uh, your career, your hobby, your car, your house. Pleasing your mother, something else. Uh, it can be anything. What is the heart and center of your life? Are you more excited about making money than Jesus Christ? Red flag. Ross Perot, fabulously wealthy, once said this. He said, uh, don't make money your God. Money is the most overrated thing in the world. Do we see that? Do we see that in society around that... Uh, ton of money is going to make somebody happy? Of course not. We see it in the woodlands. <laughs> he goes on, I've lived across the economic spectrum and give you the benefit of my experience. Most wealthy people are miserable. They're hollow, empty people on the defensive because that becomes their God so often. That's not always the case. I know some wonderful lovers of Jesus who have plenty of money, but they hold it loosely as an idol, and they're generous to give it. The big antidote for uh, greed and materialism and loving money is always generosity. It's the drain plug on greed. Amazing to me that 3% of American Christians give at least a tithe. Amazing. Is there God? Billy Graham once said, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will straighten out. It will help straighten out almost every other area of his life. And that's a biblical statement that we see in the life of Jesus. It is so very important. It is a, it is a, it is a key to your whole spiritual life, how you handle it. That's why a course like Financial Peace University that many of you have taken, writings of Dave Ramsey, can be so helpful. So Jesus says, he, he warns us, the trap, the snare of money. It is difficult for the wealthy because they're going to tend to depend upon their wealth and not upon their God. All the more so if your theology was like that of the Pharisees, that if you live a good life, God's going to make you wealthy. The biblical view is not nearly so simplistic, much more nuanced. So Peter is listening to all this. Jesus has had these incredible statements, you know, sell all you possess, give to the poor. It's difficult for the rich to get in. It's easier for a camel to go through the avenue. These incredible things. And Peter is standing there. Well, they first of all ask you, who can be saved? If even the, the, the wealthy 
who, who are supposed to be closest to God, who can be saved? Jesus says, with men, it's impossible. But not with God. It's possible with God. So it's not just the wealthy that it's impossible. All people, it's impossible. You need the grace of God. You cannot earn salvation. It only happens by a miraculous gift of God. Peter is thinking. He's thinking to himself, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus commends him. In the last sentence of the passage, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Remember he had said to the, to the man, you, you give all your wealth and you're going to have treasure in heaven. You're going to have reward in heaven with your generous giving. And here he comes back to the issue of rewards when he says, if you give up anything for the kingdom of God, relationships, home, anything for the kingdom of God, God will reward you in this life. And in the life to come, there's eternal life. Jesus is teaching you and me that there are meaningful rewards if we give our lives to serve Him and follow Him and obey Him. Now, we Christians minimize that. We, we find that that's a little embarrassing, almost a little unworthy. Uh, we confuse things. Uh, you know, if somebody marries uh, for money, you know, that's an unworthy reward. But if somebody marries for love, that's an appropriate reward. God gives us appropriate fitting rewards. It's not money. What is it? I'm, I'm not sure, but probably intimacy with the Lord, probably peace, love, and joy, the fruit of the Spirit, opportunity to serve Him. It's, it's meaningful, rich things. This is part of our motivation for living for the Christian life because God will reward us in this life and in the life to come. You get into the kingdom by grace, a gift, but there are meaningful rewards. I love C.S. Lewis's comment. I don't know where it is in his writings, probably mere Christianity. But Philip Yancey quotes it in his great book on Jesus, The Jesus I Never Knew. Uh, again, uh, library would have this. Our bookstore has about 25 carefully selected titles, including this one. This is the best book on Jesus I know. In this book, Philip Yancey quotes C.S. Lewis, whom he also loves. Lewis talks about rewards. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Live for the rewards that Jesus has promised us. He goes on. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. Now, we can't relate really much to mud pies and slums and holidays at the sea as much. But you, you got little kids, three, four years old. You offer them this great steak dinner with great vegetables or, you know, Tootsie Roll Pop. You know, that Tootsie Roll Pop's going to look better to them. You know, and we're thinking to ourselves, man, they are missing out on the real treasure. <laughs> That's how you and I live our lives. You think that big house is going to give you joy? That big income? That sleeker body? Oh, the rich treasures of life are found in God. Friends, live your life for Jesus. Live your life for Jesus. What has this passage, this challenging passage, told us? Well, first of all, unlike the self-righteous 
rich young ruler, it's not what you do to inherit eternal life. It's not what you do. Receive this. Secondly, and the primary challenge and thrust is the dangers of wealth. It's not wrong, but it's dangerous. Be careful. Don't love it. Don't love money. Just use it. Hold it loosely. It's a tool that God uses. And then thirdly, the challenge of rewards for whatever you do for Jesus Christ. Now, church, as, as we wrap up this passage, it's an interesting uh, an, an irony here. Here's this rich young ruler. What's he, 28, 30 years old, perhaps. How old is Jesus at this time? 30, young 30s, maybe. He's also young, and he's a ruler. In fact, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is rich beyond all comprehension. He owns the whole universe. He is the rich young ruler. And this young man had no idea the treasure that was Jesus was offering him. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is this great statement that Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, eternal God in heaven, all the wealth and glory and adulation is God eternal. Though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, a mere human being, dying on a cross to pay for your sin so that you through his poverty might become rich with all the joy and the glories of heaven. Friends, the love of Jesus for you gave it all for you. He gave everything for you. It is our privilege to give our lives to him. It is our privilege. Please stand with me. Friend, if you're in the room and you thought you had to earn salvation by your good works, by your religious performance, oh, humble yourself and call out to God for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. My sole hope is the blood of Jesus. Breathe a prayer now. Jesus, save me. He'll do it. He'll do it. Lord, for those of us who have done this, I pray that you would give us the wisdom not to settle for Tootsie Roll Pops when we could have great meals, banquets from your table. Lord, may we live for the kingdom. Give us grace. Give us grace. Lord, we bless you. Pray this together in Jesus' name.